Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm joining you from Berlin, where there's been an absolutely fascinating debate about transatlantic relations, Donald Trump and what it means for Germany. To help me understand it and to analyse some of the themes behind it, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jan Techau, who is the director of the Richard Holbrook Forum at the American Academy in Berlin. Uh, But he's also one of the authors of a manifesto, a transatlantic manifesto, which uh, is translated into English as In Spite of It All, America, but which was published in Die Zeit, which is a very prestigious German newspaper, and is now being responded to by various different people and is uh, resonating in a lot of German foreign policy circles. Jan, why don't we start with this manifesto? If you could tell us a bit about how it came about, why you and a group of other eminent think tankers decided to write it, and, uh, and what the main points of it are. Yes. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a great opportunity for me to also kind of lay out these arguments um, for uh, a bit of a wider audience, not just the German policy community. The um, original idea came up shortly after the elections in the United States when it was clear that Donald Trump would be the next president. And uh, somebody from that community here had the idea to basically bring everybody together in that transatlantic family um, and the German side and, and, you know, and just have an informal conversation about how that would change Trump's president, which, uh, presidency would change our work as transatlanticists. And from that came the idea then to actually write a bit of a, perhaps a, 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 a paper with policy suggestions for the new German government that would, uh, you know, be voted in in the fall here, uh, so that the coalition partners and the German government formation building process would, you know, have a document to draw from when they uh, were, were writing down uh, the program for the next German government. And then from then on, it took on a life of its own and, and basically then became a manifesto. Uh, the discussions in that group were quite heated and, and, uh, and it was quite clear that we needed something that was a bit bigger than just a recommendation to the incoming government. And so it, it turned into a, into really a very fundamental argument about why transatlanticism uh, remains important at a time when a lot of people start to question it. So do you want to lay out um, some of the main arguments at the, at the beginning of it about the, that you try and make as a group? I think the main point that we're trying to make is that despite the fact that Trump seems to contaminate you know, transatlantic relations and makes it quite poisonous on the German side uh, to argue in favor of a um, of a strong and, 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 and good working relationship with the United States, that despite this kind of very far-spread sentiment that you can observe here, transatlanticism remains a vital pillar of German foreign policy and, and, and you know, of, of European international relations and external relations uh, for that matter as well. And so uh, this was very much uh, a document that we wanted to be um, a strong argument against that anti-Trump sentiment, which was coming together in a very unfortunate way with lingering lingering anti-Americanism that always exists underneath the surface. And, And this kind of feeling that now with Trump, basically, not only is this Trump, but 
you know, in effect, this is really the United States in a new kind of dress, in a new kind of form. This is not the America that we can still rely on, and everything needs to change now. And if you want to be a transatlanticist now, then, you know, that is really a foolish idea. And we thought that this cannot be. This is not what it's all about. Um, and uh, And what we saw with a lot of concern was that um, rather mainstream German political commentators in the media and elsewhere um, started to really think about what they called liberation from Atlanticism, that they thought it would be a good idea for Germany to finally liberate itself from, uh, you know, from this, from, from the United States as the kind of paternal protector and, and would have to go, um, finally would have to go elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, and, and we were quite shocked by this because this goes against the grain of all of our historic lessons in this country, this idea of Westbindung, the firm embeddedness of Germany in the Western community of nations, which relies to a large degree on the United States. Um, and then the second point was also, you know, very important, a point that has been made frequently by others as well, but which for us became instrumental in making that main point, namely that Trump, of course, is not the United States. Uh, Trump is not even just the U.S. government. There's a lot more to it. Um, and uh, fundamentally, it boiled down to the question, do you have any trust still in the checks and balances and the health of American democracy? Uh, and do you believe that, you know, that American democracy can survive Trump? Or do you think that finally U.S. democracy is over, which is a point that was actually made in all seriousness over here? And so there were various motivations there. Um, and perhaps the best way to illustrate what we have in mind is to uh, remind people that really transatlantic relations works at two levels. There's the agenda level, uh, where you have all of the issues that are part of the daily news cycle. You know, your issue of the day, whether that's trade or communications or uh, data sharing or whatever is on the transatlantic agenda. Um, and where we've always had disputes with the United States and, and where we've had always good ways to deal with them. And then there's a layer underneath this, the fundamental layer, and that is the layer of basically of order, of peace, of the peace order in Europe, uh, and that that still depends to a large extent on the United States, and that this is where quarrel between the United States and Europe is unhealthy. It is not part of the daily kind of political grind. And we wanted to make a distinction between the two because we feared that not only does Trump mix these two levels and can't distinguish between the two, but also the critics of the United States over here in Germany weren't able to distinguish between the two. And so we wanted to make clear that uh, there was more to it than met the eye. Okay. So well, that's a, it's a great introduction to it. Um, I have to say that um, emotionally, not just because you and a lot of the other authors of this manifesto are a good friends of mine I, I feel very much on your side but also you know I am the product of uh, a German Jewish mother and a, a British father so Atlanticism has been quite an existential thing for my family so I, I'm also got a kind of deep uh, commitment to the transatlantic relationship that is kind of somewhere in my DNA but at the same time as somebody who only spent some of his time in Berlin and some of the time in, in the UK. I did kind of have some some questions about uh, the way that you framed it and the way that you laid it out. Maybe it'd be interesting to, to to explore to what extent we are in a new world at the moment. Because one of the things which you see uh, someone saying in London, certainly, this German debate about people who are in favour of the Westbindung and the, the sort of Sonderweg of Germany going down its own kind of path and 
developing some sort of relationship with the Russians or the Chinese or with other players is something which, which a lot of Germans are sort of paranoid about. But at the moment, the idea of the West is something which you only really feel very strongly in Germany. <laughs> when I go to the US, the, the West is something which is very much a minority pursuit. The number of people interested in Europe is kind of pretty small. They're much more interested in the Pacific than the, and the battle there than they are in, in, in European battles. And then, the, you know, the other pillar of the West, the UK, is also going through a kind of weird psychodrama uh, as, a, as evidenced by the, the Brexit debate. So, I've, you know, slightly wonder whether you're trying to be more Western uh, than the West. And if in some ways the West that you're trying to stay part of is something which has already been rejected by the, the kind of founding nations of it. How do you feel about that kind of... Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, the fundamental dilemma that the Germans find themselves in, um, that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of our crucial lessons from the past is that we can only live in peace with our neighbors and with ourselves, actually, if we are part of that West, if we have Westbindung, if we have this absolutely um, uh, firm embeddedness as part of that Western family of nations, which is not the German tradition. The German tradition is very much a Central European tradition, often, you know, one that is combined with the temptation of somehow being in equidistance to East and West, somewhere in the middle, unattached, you know, big enough to somehow sustain this, which is the tragedy of German history. You know, whenever that was attempted, that spelled um, very bad news for the rest of Europe. And so, you know, Westbindung, that is kind of the... But what happens when Westbindung is your fundamental lesson in history and that West is no longer there uh, or becomes a lot weaker? And that, of course, you know, is, is our main concern, which is why we not only do make an appeal in this document for, you know, uh, engaging the U.S. and not giving up on the U.S. under Trump, but also making the case to the United States that the West is actually important for them as well, that it is not wise for them strategically for a number of reasons to give up on the idea. So this is not just about our behavior. This is also about trying to explain to the other side, you know, what we think is in their interest and that not in the form of lecturing or grandstanding or being the schoolmaster, but of making a very strategic case why that bond still matters. And and so, you know, it, 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 this document... Um, uh, also in that sense works at, at various levels at the same time. I'd like to go into some of the detail of that but I, one thing that I sort of did wonder is whether what we're seeing actually is almost a conflict between two ideas of the West which you're sort of conflating in that because the Westbindung has both been about an alliance with the US and the UK which has been, as you write in the document, the foundation of, of the reinvention of Germany uh, and its saviour from the, the kind of horrible, dark place that it went in the 20th century. But it's also what the German historian uh, Winkler calls the normative project of the West. It stands for certain values which are related to the environment, to the Enlightenment, um, and which a lot of German thinkers were involved in, in developing hundreds of years ago. But what Trump brings into the kind of four is almost a conflict between these two Wests, that if you want to remain true to the normative project of the West and the values of the Enlightenment, a lot of what you're doing has to be about opposing, containing, and uh, generally frustrating uh, uh, American and British policies. As Britain uh, attacks the European Union, which is the kind of 
in a way, the institutional embodiment of, uh, of this sort of enlightenment project in our continent. And the US uh, threatens a lot of the kind of global institutions which embody it, whether it's the Paris climate deal, the JCPOA, the, the, the Iran nuclear deal, or uh, the World Trade Organization. Yes, I mean, this is a crucial question, the idea, you know, that there is a distinction between countries that are to our West, and then countries that belong to the normative project. And in the past, those were one and the same. And now seemingly, that's no longer the case. But that's the point that we're challenging. We have much stronger confidence and that um, the United States in particular, but also Britain, that what we see at the moment is not necessarily the norm uh, and is not what these countries fundamentally actually stand for. We have a lot more optimism than some of the critics who say, you know, uh, you know, forget about the Anglo-Saxon system. Now that's over. You know, that, that economically, uh, spiritually, values-wise, these folks have kind of, you know, declared bankruptcy. We don't believe that that's the case. We believe that, you know, President Trump does not represent the United States as a whole. He is currently in power. Um, but even within his administration, there are different ways of thinking about these kinds of things. And certainly he doesn't stand for all of the United States society. And, uh, and we believe that the checks and balances and the kind of common sense approach to these things fundamentally is still intact and will not be destroyed as a whole by an aberration. Um, and, and so we have a lot more trust that fundamentally you can actually in the end rely on this, and, 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 uh, which is good because we also actually have to rely on it. The other point is that while making this point, it is also very important for us in this manifesto that this is not just about sitting it out. This is not just about waiting for another three years or so and then all will be well again. We don't believe this. Um, you know, there will be a lasting impact and plus the intellectual kind of movement that brought Trump into office will, of course, remain. The question is how strong it will remain in the United States. We believe that, you know, um, this is not the end of, the, of U.S. democracy and this is not the end of U.S. interests, which fundamentally are about partners and alliances, not just in Asia, but also in Europe. So um, this is a very long way of answering your question, but it is a complicated case to make. It's a sophisticated case to make, which can very easily be shot down by very simplistic language about, ah, just forget about the United States. And so we, we were very lucky that we got so much space in a major paper to make that point in a sophisticated way and to not look like people who will just shrug away Trump and say, you know, uh, he's just a surface phenomenon. No, he's more than that. But at the same time, he's still not the United States. And that's what we rely on. Well, let's, let's go probe a bit deeper, because I, I think... It's obviously uh, true that Trump is not America and Trump is not forever. Uh, so I'm happy to go along with that. But at the same time, what I think a lot of people have noted is that the uh, West has been going through a major structural change as a result of the end of the Cold War. And that there is a kind of secular trend of continental drift with our interests and our kind of values no longer being aligned in the way that they were beforehand. And if you just, you know, I think we're more or less the same age. We've kind of seen, we've lived through that. When I was, a, when we were children, it was during the Cold War, it was a sort of existential uh, bond, which outweighed absolutely everything else. Um, when we were starting to think about foreign policy issues, maybe in a more kind of grown up way, uh, it was probably after the Cold War and there, you know, in the in the 1990s, 
the transatlantic relationship was no longer existential, but it was really important. There was no way that we could deal with uh, genocide in the Balkans without America, without Richard Holbrook, after whom your program is named at Dayton. There would not probably have been a, a political settlement to what was happening in former Yugoslavia. And, and when um, uh, we acted in Kosovo, that would have been unthinkable without the US. 80, I think 80 or 85% of the, of, the, uh, of the bombs that were dropped on Kosovo came from American planes rather than from European ones. But after that, since the turn of the century, young people who are younger than us, the generations who've been coming up after us, don't really see America as a source of order and of, and of stability because actually their experience has more been about America dragging Europeans into conflicts uh, which haven't gone so well, whether it's in Afghanistan, in Iraq. And when things have happened in Europe, the US hasn't really been there. When uh, the annexation of Crimea happened, it was up to Europeans to, um, uh, to lead both on the diplomacy and to bear the, the brunt of the costs through sanctions. So there is a kind of strong sense for young people who are younger than us, who don't have this kind of emotional memory of the Cold War, that actually the US hasn't really been there for, for, for Europeans as a, a sort of guarantor of security. In fact, what it has done is create a lot of instability and disorder. And then they add in things like uh, the global financial crisis and Snowden and, you know, it's a different kind of anti-Americanism that comes as a result of that. How, how do you kind of respond to those people that say, OK, what you're saying is all very well up to the, you know, the end of the last century. But in this century, what do we actually need America for? What has America done for us recently? Yeah, um, no, I mean, absolutely crucial point. Um, what you see now is a generation that was kind of socialized during the Iraq uh, conundrum uh, when we had a major fallout, not just between the Europeans and the United States, but also amongst Europeans over that case. And you can see how that socialization now basically taints the thinking or frames the thinking for a lot of people when they have to approach the US in a, in a more fundamental way. But, you know, my answer to the question would be that contrary to what most people think, um, the U.S. still remains to be uh, remains an existential um, a partner for the Europeans uh, for, for two very you know obvious and, and and clear reasons. The first one is that we still, on a daily basis, rely on the American security guarantee that comes with extended deterrence. Something that Germans do not like to talk about a lot. Um, because it has something to do with nuclear arms. And, uh, you know, what keeps us free of political um, blackmail is that security guarantee. Really? And, yeah, it still does. You don't it's, think it's that the force de frappe and the, the Brits might be able to step into that? Yeah, but from a German perspective, that looks slightly different. Um, it's quite clear, and the French government specifically has that has made that very clear vis-a-vis -vis the German government many times, starting in the 80s with Mitterrand vis-a-vis -vis coal, that the French nuclear arms were for France and that, you know, they couldn't be divided and that they couldn't be made a deterrent for others as well. Um, you know, that kind of currency, the trust currency amongst Europeans, um, uh, when it comes to nuclear arms, but even to, to, to the other parts of, of deterrence, that trust currency is relatively weak, a lot weaker than I think, than most people would would realize. Um, and this is the second point that I'm making. Apart from that reliance on the U.S. extended deterrent security guarantee, the U.S. was also crucial and still is crucial 
basically as the dominant military power in Europe, um, because by being that dominant military power in Europe, a non-European power that is dominant in the European market, what it basically makes obsolete is the power rivalry between the Europeans, amongst the Europeans that for 2000 years dominated the continent. So that, that you know, by basically being here, by organizing deterrence and by being here also physically on the ground um, as an unintended positive consequence, they have also brought a huge trust infusion into the European political market because, you know, there was no point in being rivals between the Germans and the French or, you know, all of these other powers. I mean, that's definitely true historically. I mean, I think the question is sort of looking forward. A, like there are not so many of these American troops left now. They have kind of largely pivoted outside of Europe. And, and to the extent that they're doing stuff in Europe, it's mainly uh, as a place to, to go and get involved in other theatres from. But also, you know, if you think about the big foreign policy questions facing Germany at the moment, it's pretty clear that German interests are fundamentally misaligned with American interests. So on the refugee crisis, for example, it's a kind of huge issue. When you talk to Germans, it's the most important issue on their agenda by a long margin. And a lot of these refugees have been caused by American action or inaction in different theatres. And when they engage with other powers, you know, the idea of minimizing flows of refugees isn't even there on the agenda. It's not even the top hundred kind of things which they worry about when they're thinking about Syria and Iraq and, and, and other kinds of countries. When it comes to the Turkey relationship, um, which is obviously fundamental to Germany, partly because for the refugee crisis, it's not that clear that there's a that there is a sort of overlap between German and um, uh, American interests. And, you know, other kind of questions which are which are quite pressing, like the Balkans, it's like not even there on the American agenda. I mean, it's not entirely clear to me that America is the answer to most of the things which Germany's worried about in terms of its security. And where America is part of the picture, there is often quite a big conflict between what the strategic goals are and the drivers of policy on both sides. Well, I mean, we would now have to look at all of these in issues individually, you know, to really get the correct picture, I think. Um, I agree that we have seen for the last 25 years a relatively systematic reduction of the U.S. footprint, both militarily and politically in Europe, which is a very worrisome tendency. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, which was only slightly reversed after the Ukraine crisis. And interestingly enough, that reversal that Obama brought to the European market by reinforcing a footprint here I was continued under President Trump. So on the surface, you know, it, it looks like there's some sort of reorientation, at least a minor one towards Europe. But I think the overall trend is less interest in the United States, which is why the manifesto also asks, you know, for us to work towards, you know, making it clear to Americans that, you know, some of their status as a power also relies on how valuable their footprint in Europe still is, because it's something that the rest of the world also observes. But, you know, to come back to one or two of the examples that you've mentioned, I think when it comes to, uh, came to Ukraine, it was, uh, we had a pretty concerted uh, uh, approach to it. It was quite clear from the outset that neither the Americans nor the Europeans would go to war over, over Crimea. 
Um, and, uh, and the approach was actually quite well coordinated. The Europeans took the lead on the sanctions, but without the United States playing along on the sanctions, uh, you know, this kind of uh, diplomacy that you were mentioning uh, would not have taken place. So I think that's actually an example of where the United States was concerned, probably actually and, and involved, probably against its own will. It didn't want to get involved too much, but it realized that the strategic importance of the issue was too high, while at the same time nobody was willing to go to war over it. Refugees, I would challenge the assumption that it was American action in the Middle East that triggered the refugee crises. Um, uh, certainly that is a, kind of the old argument that you hear a lot in Germany. If only Iraq hadn't happened, we wouldn't have all of these Syrian That's refugees. That's not what I'm, I'm saying. I'm saying that it's a combination of American action and inaction. But it is, that's part of, that's the first half. But the second half is that stemming the flow of refugees was not at any stage a major priority for American foreign policy in the region. You know, there were things which were at play. There was a concern about getting rid of ISIL. Yeah. There was a concern, I think, both for um, uh, Obama and for Trump, a concern not to get sucked into any more land wars um, in the region. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that that was the same motivation on the European side. The Europeans, for a very, very long time, um, uh, had the same approach to the region. You know, we don't want to get involved. We don't want to get sucked in. Um, and they they overlooked the strategic importance of it for a very long time. And they were actually unprepared um, when their own inaction played a role in bringing all of those refugees to their borders and into their countries. So, you know, again, we had, uh, you know, a strategic failure on both sides, but this time it was it was concerted as well. Um, the Europeans, you know, did not play a particularly strategic role in the region and, and, uh, and you know, couldn't really be um, moved except, you know, except on ISIS, where both the Americans and the Europeans had a major concern. But on the refugee crisis triggered by the uh, Syrian war, inaction was prevalent on both sides. And I'm not saying that's a great thing, but I think to put the blame here on the Americans who kind of left the Europeans in the lurch is not really justified because the Europeans themselves were performing so lackluster. I agree. This I'm not about to take on the impossible task of defending European policy towards Syria and <laughs> the region over yes. the last five years. But carry on. No, and, and so I, I think um, what we have here is we have two sides of the coin. We have an America that is systematically less interested in Europe, which is a problem for transatlantic relations and for Europeans who still want to rely on the Americans. And we have Europeans who, on the one hand, are unable to unite and integrate in a way that makes a strategic difference in their foreign policy. And at the same time, the same Europeans are now, under Trump, developing a very, very strong aversion to, to America as such, culturally, politically, in many, many ways. Old kind of, you know, uh, stereotypes are coming up again in a way that we haven't seen in 20 or 30 years. Not even Iraq triggered the same kind of emotional reaction. Um, and so in the manifesto, you say, you know, guys, look, look at the strategic um, fundamentals here. Look at the basic arithmetics of our situation. And we're addressing this, you know, mostly to the Europeans and the Germans, but also to the Americans. We can actually disagree on the president. We can disagree on many of his policies uh, and maybe even on all of the policies. But there is something underneath that that is so fundamental that we need to remind ourselves how important it is for the relationship and for the status of both sides. And that's basically the purpose of the manifesto, that yes, you need to be critical and yes, the Europeans need to do more. And yes, you know, we can't talk and sweet talk and kind of, you know, make Trump be more beautiful than he is. 
but there's something that at stake that is much higher. And all of the alternatives, you know, without the United States will not necessarily look better um, or will give us more of the kind of safety and stability that we crave um, uh, than, you know, uh, uh, maintaining a workable relationship with the U.S. even in difficult times. And that was basically the purpose of what we were trying to say. Do you not fear that your manifesto might actually be counterproductive? Because my colleagues, um, Nick Whitney and Jeremy Shapiro, a Briton and American, uh, in 2010 wrote a, a report calling for a post-American Europe. And what they were sort of arguing was that the transatlantic relationship as it's set up infantilizes Europeans, stops them taking responsibility for themselves. And actually the biggest danger to transatlanticism is that infantilization, that Europeans don't think for themselves, don't invest in their own security. Yeah, I think two very quick answers to this. Um, and, and this is where I can only speak as myself and not as the collective of authors who wrote this manifesto. Um, I am personally, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I have worked for a long, long time on promoting a stronger Europe, a Europe that sees itself as a strategic player um, and, and, and is much more of a kind of a, a external power in a way. And I did this in Brussels in my previous job at the Carnegie uh, Europe uh, think tank there and so on and so forth. My feeling is that neither historically nor when it comes to the current political situation, will the Europeans be in the situation and capable of replacing um, America as the strategic um, uh, stabilizer? They are not. Even under the best of circumstances, even if cooperation started to be ideal tomorrow, um, replacing that weight and might um, would not happen overnight, but would take a very, very long time. Uh, and this is mostly because of political will. So I'm quite pessimistic on this idea of European autonomy, um, mostly because history has shown that they haven't been quite capable, but also because currently the political, um, the political capital for it seems to be absent. Um, and the second point is that uh, Donald Trump was quite successful in actually reframing the debate about Article 5 and the future of NATO and the European security architecture, reframing it in a way that people started to believe that it was dependent on European spending patterns. But ultimately, the future of Article 5 depends on whether the United States still sees a strategic interest in Europe. That's the most important thing. The ball is in the American court when it comes to the future of NATO, not in the European. The European need to spend more, but we should not be under the illusion that the Americans will come to our defense just because we pay more into the pot. That was never about money. It was always about strategic interest. And we should know this. So um, uh, Trump was able to kind of fog this over. But in reality, you know, um, it is American strategic elites who need to make the call on NATO because it has always been about the Americans. And this is why I think this, this entire idea of the Europeans kind of spending themselves out of the malaise, becoming more autonomous, uh, there's a lot of truth in that we have to do more. But full replacement, full autonomy seems to me, uh, you know, um, uh, neither practical nor ideologically quite attractive because it lets all of those off the hook who have been arguing um, especially in Germany, for, for some sort of equidistance and for basically turning your back on the West. There's also an ideological undertone in that autonomy issue. It is also something about, you know, we, we Europeans defining ourselves against the Americans, not just strategic autonomy, but something against the Americans. And that, I think, can only spell doom and gloom for us in the long term. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jan, for uh, launching this debate. It, 
I think is a much needed debate in Germany. And um, it's been fascinating talking to you about it. We'll see how uh, people carry on responding both in Germany and in the US. And I'm sure that these themes are not going to disappear anytime soon. Certainly not. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks a million. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do tell other people about it, either by writing on our Facebook page or yours, tweeting about it. But above all, why not write a review and leave us a ranking on iTunes? We will put links up both to Jan Techau's manifesto and also to ECFR's publications on transatlantic relations, including the classic post-American Europe one that I mentioned earlier and Jeremy Shapiro's great new transatlantic power audit. But for now, from Jan Techau and Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Thank you.